Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 117, Mercy, Mercy Me. Welcome back to another episode of the Theopologetics Podcast. I'm very thankful that you've uh, tuned in, and uh, we'll jump right into the interview that I have for you today in, in just a minute or two. I, I did want to mention a couple of things, some some bad news and some good news, uh, some bad news for which I'd ask your prayers and some good news for which I praise the Lord. Uh, the bad news is, unfortunately, after uh, about 13 or 14 years Working at uh, Microsoft as a software developer, uh, I was unfortunately part of a uh, layoff, a sweeping layoff, you know, uh, set of layoffs that have been happening over the past several months at Microsoft. And so now I'm in the process of uh, looking for new employment, and I would be grateful for your prayers. You know, I've I've said for some time that one day I'd like to move into teaching. Uh, but I didn't. I don't think that it's going to happen anytime soon. So I'm going to have to look for another job in software development, and. Um, you know, the job market isn't uh, the best it's ever been right now. So uh, please do keep me in your prayers if you're so inclined. The good news uh, is that, or at least I think it's kind of good news, is that uh, myself and the uh, organization or, or ministry, Rethinking Hell, were mentioned in a New York Times uh, beliefs column piece by Mark Oppenheimer uh, a few days ago, Saturday. And um, it was just incredible to see my name and to see the ministry Rethinking Hell uh, mentioned in the piece. Uh, Edward Fudge was mentioned in as well. He was the he was the um, centerpiece of of the of the piece. Uh, and John Stackhouse was quoted in it. Critic of conditionalism, uh, uh, Sean Bowalski was mentioned in it as well. So it's it's a really um, I think it's a fair and balanced piece. And I would encourage you to check it out online. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. But if you were just if you just did a Bing or Google search for New York Times beliefs, uh, the very first link that the very first result that pops up should be a link to the column that contains uh, the article. It begins the title of it begins with "Tormented in the Afterlife." So do check that out. And apparently, it caught the interest of another big news outlet, uh, or at least I think it's kind of a big news outlet. Al Mohler's uh, the Briefing radio program. Uh, just this morning, t- today is uh, October 15th, and just this morning, uh, Al mentioned the New York Times piece and Rethinking Hell in the, um, in, in his, uh, uh, in his, in his radio show, beginning at about 8.40 and going for about 10 minutes, or, or 8 minutes. And, um, you know, he's certainly no fan of our view, and it wasn't a glowing endorsement or anything, but news of this view is, is beginning to, um, travel, uh, news of its, res- of its resurgence, and, um, and, and it's it's really exciting to see a ministry that I'm a part of getting some uh, some attention in the news, whether positive, negative, or neutral. Um, so these are things I'm pra- praising God for, and I'll I'll include a link to, in the show notes to uh, Al's radio show so that you can listen to it yourself. And uh, so so yeah, the, the cause for prayer and a cause for praise, or at least for those of you who share my view and. Um, and uh, I would appreciate you uh, you praying for for my job situation. Uh, I'll at this point play the next promo in my rotation, which is for Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. You're unbelievable. Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks. But where can you hear the arguments of your favorite defenders of faith 
actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate. Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative if we can't agree on what the text was? Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God. Do you mean God when you say I agency? God, is a, God, I mean God. Is a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness. And life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to Cutting Edge Apologetics Debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's Unbelievable, the show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. I'm an enormous fan of Justin Brierley's and of his show, The Unbelievable Radio Program. I think he does a phenomenal job of bringing Christians and non-Christians together, uh, together to talk about the deeply important apologetics issues that, uh, that face believers, uh, that believers are faced with today. Um, the things that challenge them, the, the questions that atheists challenge us with. Um, it's a phenomenal show for keeping on top of those kinds of things and hearing what great minds on either side of the debate have to say. Uh, he's also great at bringing Christians of different theological persuasions on to discuss and debate theological issues um, that Christians are divided over today. And again, in a way that's irenic and charitable and, and respectful. And I think that's really important. I really don't think there's a show like it uh, on uh, on the radio today. And so, again, I, I can't I can't highly enough recommend Justin and his show. Uh, so I would encourage you to check it out. You can find it at premierchristianradio.com slash shows slash Saturday slash unbelievable. That's a long URL. Maybe you should just go to Bing or, or Google and uh, search for unbelievable with Justin Brierley and, and it'll pop right up. Uh, you can also just search for Unbelievable in iTunes or, you know, in whatever your um, podcasting program is. Um, the, the, he does do the show live, but I'm assuming most of my listeners are in the States and are not listening to the show live uh, by radio. And so I think the best way to listen to a show is ju- to just download the podcast, which comes out right after the show airs or even maybe during it. I don't know. Um, so, so do check his show out. I'll include a link in the show notes. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. Hello and welcome to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Here on the show, we've traversed quite a bit of terrain covering a wide variety of theological and apologetics issues. And having earned his PhD in systematic theology from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, my guest would surely feel quite at home discussing many of the things that we've discussed on this show. But as important as sound theology and effective apologetics are, one issue that we haven't looked at yet on the show, and about which my guest is particularly passionate, is how to go about caring for the poor and for the downtrodden around the world. 
He's associate professor and department chair of the School of Religion at Liberty University, and he was recently my professor in a two-semester survey of theology I took as part of the degree I'm seeking there. His name is Dr. Ted Rivera, and he joins me today, today to discuss his recent book, Reforming Mercy Ministry, A Practical Guide to Loving Your Neighbor, which he considers to be the most valuable thing he's done. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Rivera. My pleasure. So glad to be with you. Uh, I'd like to begin, as I normally do, by getting to know you a little bit, uh, beginning with your testimony or your faith background, whatever you might like to call it. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm always interested to learn about the beginnings from which the theologians and apologists that I have on my show have come. So uh, were you were you raised in a Christian home? Was, that, was the faith something that you embraced early on, or was it something that maybe you believed later in life? Tell us about that. Well, I'm always a little bit skittish about how testimonies are told, and the reason I say that is because I, I, I prefer to keep the focus on the Lord Jesus. I would say, unfortunately, that my testimony is a bit common in the sense that I was involved in all kinds of trouble. We'll just put it generally. Um, I was brought up in a Roman Catholic home and uh, for whatever reason, did not embrace the ideas uh, which were presented from Scripture, even in that context. But uh, at some point in the middle of my college experience, as it turns out, a Jesuit college, um, I was presented the gospel and trusted Christ at that point in time. And what is it that got you interested in systematic theology and, and, and prompted you to focus on it academically and professionally? Uh, it's interesting that you ask that. In, in point of fact, uh, in my Masters of Divinity, I focused almost exclusively on biblical study of one kind or another. I did a lot of work, for example, in esoteric aspects of the minor prophet Nahum, for example. But uh, I guess that I just wanted to keep studying and learning and decided that systematic theology was the domain that I was least familiar with. So um, it's not because I had a lifelong passion for systematic theology. On the contrary, uh, contrary I guess I felt that it was a lacuna, uh, an empty spot that needed to be filled. I see. Well, now, the important book that you recently published and about which we'll talk in a moment, it's not the only one that you've published. Um, I recently co-edited a book published by Cascade Books, which is, uh, as you probably are aware, an imprint of Whip and Stock, whose other imprint, Pickwick Publications, published a book that you wrote called Jonathan Edwards on Worship, Public and Private Devotion to God back in 2010, and then not quite a year ago, if, if my timeline has, is constructed in my mind correctly, Zondervan published your theological primer, The Heart of Love, Obeying God's Two Great Commandments. And, and both books are available at Amazon.com. In fact, The Heart of Love is available on Kindle. Do you want to say a word or two about these books in case some of my listeners might be interested in getting their hands on a copy? Well, asking a, an author if he's interested in a subject is what we would call low-hanging fruit. So I will... <laughs> I will gladly grab the apple. <laughs> um, Jonathan Edwards has long been uh, an individual with whom I've been intrigued, not only because of his tremendous theology, but in, in fact, the complexity of his times and his personal life and so forth. And having studied many of the works published through Yale, I realized that there really were very few studies that were focused on his biblical understanding of specific subjects. And Dr. Kenneth Minkema pointed me to the fact that the subject of worship was one area that had not been tapped uh, especially. So that began my interest, and it evolved into what became my dissertation and subsequently my first book. 
And then uh, I guess that this this book published by Zondervan last year, The Heart of Love, um, is really what I would view as the centerpiece of sort of a uh, trio of books that I've been working on. Uh, I tried to make the simplest primer that I could um, with the idea in mind that I would feature not only the first great commandment and its many implications, but the second and so this book that we're going to talk about tonight, Reforming Mercy Ministry, is a second uh, dimension of that. And then there's a third book, which I'd like to think is forthcoming, which explores some of the theological implications of mercy ministry in more detail. So that uh, perhaps provides a bit of context for you. Well, maybe uh, maybe one day I'll have you on the show a second time to discuss <laughs> that book, uh, if it is indeed forthcoming, as you suspect. Uh you know, as I mentioned in introducing you, you teach at Liberty University, where I'm currently pursuing my undergraduate degree, uh, and from what I can gather is where you've been since early 2007. What brought you there to Liberty? And, and for those of my listeners who may be seeking a degree, whether in religion or otherwise, and whether at the undergraduate, graduate, or postgraduate levels, why do you think that maybe they should consider Liberty? Uh, it's it's an important question to consider. I think uh, the size of the institution uh, at its uh, foundational point is something that catches your attention. And, you know, we in the Christian faith don't necessarily look at large and successful as points of gravitation, but we do have to look at that and say, perhaps God is doing something significant there. Mm. And I, I have seen all across Christendom, people from different backgrounds coming. And, you know, I, I think that we sort of enthusiastically embrace the idea that regardless of what one's background is, our goal is to uh, speak about and teach the truths of Scripture and to focus on that, particularly at the undergraduate level where I tend to focus. And so, you know, whether it's residentially or online, it presents unique opportunities that are unmatched at present in Christian circles. Mm. You know, speaking of people from different backgrounds and, and possibly if my uh, minimal knowledge of church history is accurate. Uh, it, it leads it leads nicely to the next question that I have for you, and, and and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but I think it'd be valuable for some of my listeners, just given given the, the, my knowledge of many of my listeners. Uh, I and many of them are Calvinists. Uh, that might be something that you might have picked up from one or two of my papers, and and it seems to some of us uh, as if liberty is not. I guess officially, anyway, very friendly toward Calvinism. I mean, you've got Ergen Canner, for example, who uh, you know was once president and dean of the seminary there at Liberty, and he hasn't shied away from publicly and very vocally criticizing Calvinism. Uh, in the introduction to Reformed Baptist, Dr. James White's popular internet radio show series, Radio Free Geneva, the announcer jokes that the show is broadcast from a bunker deep underground at Liberty University where no one would ever think to look. Now, now I say all this because although I began my degree at Liberty a little worried about viewpoint discrimination being a Calvinist. I, I haven't experienced any so far, and my best friend, who's currently seeking his master's at Liberty, uh, at the Liberty Seminary, he hasn't either, even though both of us have articulated and defended Calvinist views. So I, I guess the question I'm getting at, is there anything that you might want to say to encourage any of my Calvinist listeners who might otherwise think that they wouldn't be welcome at Liberty? Well, I, I think I'd like to respond your question in an unusual way. Okay. So, so let's say, for example, that you were the pastor of a Pentecostal or charismatic church, mm. and you had a, a couple of 
young members of your congregation who were interested in going to a Christian college, um, you would not necessarily want them to go to an institution um, whose sole purpose was to immediately present them with alternative views to Pentecostalism or charismatic perspectives. You would instead hope that the chief focus would be on scripture, that there would be open uh, dialogue on any topic. And, and so I guess I begin with, with that unusual perspective to say, um, no matter whether someone is a Calvinist or an Arminian, by the way, I don't think many people walk around calling themselves <laughs> Arminian, um, but um, regardless of one's viewpoint, I do tend to see, especially among the faculty, a, a real intentional openness to varying perspectives with the idea that our intent, especially in the undergraduate level, is to try to focus on what the scripture says, to present that as clearly as possible, and to create an atmosphere, whether in discussion boards or dialogue, that allow for people in a positive forum to present their own views and do so in a way that's not threatening. Yeah. I do think that atmosphere is what I've experienced personally and uh, would hope to foster. Well, I can certainly testify to ex having experienced that kind of environment myself uh, without mentioning the professor under whom I wrote this essay. I wrote an essay uh, advocating a, a reformed um, uh, theodicy in which I quite strongly spoke out against uh, a libertarian view of free will, and I wasn't marked down for you know to any degree as a result of it. And when I defended that view in my conversations with other students, I wasn't uh, uh, I wasn't marked down by my t teacher either. So um, so yeah, I would hope that my listeners, those of whom are those of which are Calvinists, hopefully would uh, uh, would hear what I you know hear what we're saying and, and be open to um, the possibility that they wouldn't experience any sort of discrimination because I don't think they will. But but let's shift gears a bit from getting to know you and and what you do at Liberty to talking about your most recent book, Reforming Mercy Ministry: A Practical Guide to Loving Your Neighbor. And and it's not only your most recent book. You told me not long ago that it's the most valuable thing that you've done. So tell us a little bit about its origins. Where, where did the idea to write the book come from? What, what is it that prompted you to write it? Well, I, I guess I didn't intentionally begin with the idea of reforming mercy ministry, as the title suggests. And in fact, for probably the three or four or even five years, it sort of took me to construct the book. The working title was 33 Ways to Help. And along the way, my, my aim was to explore various ways by which Christians could very specifically be trying to minister to others. And along the way, I guess, some of my attitude toward how it is that we as Christians sometimes view aspects of mercy ministry came to the surface a bit more, so much so that when the publisher, InterVarsity, uh, read the book. They suggested, you know, what you're really doing here is not only presenting 33 different topics, but you are, in effect, suggesting some changes with respect to how we view mercy ministry and perhaps how we practice it. So uh, that perhaps gives a bit of context for uh, how the idea for the book came about. And, and why do you think that the book and the topic in it are so important? I mean, you know, worship and theology are certainly very important in thinking like God and drawing near to Him. Why is this book then still more valuable than your others? I can't say exactly what the genesis of the idea was, but I would like to 
think that it was God himself uh, speaking through scripture that sort of highlighted for me at some point in the past the idea that Jesus himself is the one who labels this idea that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, not as the second really good commandment or a, a second commandment worth considering, but he calls it the second great commandment, like unto the first great commandment, where we're compelled to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so the implications of that actually pressed me to uh, consider theology specifically. This book is is uh, oriented more toward uh, a middle ground between sort of a theological uh, audience and a, a layman. Um, I started, though, with theological considerations, and as I reviewed systematic theology texts, for example, uh, books that label themselves practical theology or pastoral theology or uh, any other kind of theology, I found that the emphasis in all of our theological works, and I use the word all carefully, um, is tilted toward issues that, that we would say relate primarily to the first commandment and only to a limited degree to the second great commandment. Mm. And so, and as a consequence, you know, um, all three books sort of started to form in my mind. I guess the, the first one, the little primer that you mentioned, um, started with the concern that, well, someone will say, well, is there a better theology that we could draw from? And so what should we be doing practically, though, is the concern of this work, Reforming Mercy Ministry. Okay. Now, in the, in the preface, preface to your book, you, you reproduce Matthew 25, 31 to 46, in which those whom the parabolic king grants life are those who fed the hungry, welcomed the stranger, cared for the sick, and so on. Whereas those whom the king sentences to punishment are those who have, who have, well, have, done, who have not done, done those things. And then you write this. You write, the primary preoccupations of Christians, Bible study, daily devotions, evangelism, and common worship, are conspicuously absent from Jesus' view of future judgment in this passage. Now, immediately this is likely to trigger alarms in the minds of systematic theologians who see Paul elsewhere insisting that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works, that like Abraham, the believer's faith is credited him as righteousness by the God who justifies the ungodly. So as important as this passage reveals our care for others to be, I assume you're not suggesting that it is the extent to which we've cared for others that is the, the basis of our justification, you know, and, and if I'm right, what then do you see as the right relationship between faith and works according to the gospel? Well, that, that's actually several questions, so I'll try to unpack them as best I can. Sure. Um, I, I think that in mainstream Christianity, the way that the gospel is often presented is in very much a packaged sort of way. Here is Jesus. There are concerns you should have about Jesus. You need to trust in him, and by virtue of that act, you will be saved. Now, we could certainly look to statements in Paul's writing that confirm fundamentally certain truths about that. I guess that I'm emphasizing this passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats by virtue of what they've actually done as a part of the conversation that doesn't seem to fit in neatly to our discussions of salvation, mm 
whether with other believers or with unbelievers. And so clearly, Jesus is not concerned in this sermon with being a systematic theologian. Instead, what he seems to be doing is emphasizing the dramatic change that affects believers. They live a life in such a way that they make decisions with respect to people in our world who are hurting, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, and so forth. And so while it's urgently important that we have right doctrine with respect to justification, sanctification, adoption, and all the pearls, the string of pearls of the faith, Mm. so also we need to have good doctrine as it pertains to how we should live. And, you know, certainly James is the place that we tend to turn to in chapter 2 with respect to uh, faith without works being dead. But practically speaking, I think, This sermon Jesus gives us in Matthew 25 is a very broad sort of basis on which to to build a practical Christian life. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember the who it is that said this, but one of the things that has struck me is is the is the saying that we are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that isn't alone. You know what I mean? That the faith yeah. that saves is a faith is a faith that manifests in the kinds of um, treatment of others that we see in the passage we're talking about. Do you think that's a fair way to look at it? I do. I, I absolutely do. And I, I guess that you know, by beginning my book with this particular passage, I'm I'm certainly consciously trying to jar people from <laughs> uh, the com- comfortable ruts that perhaps we've uh, fallen into. Well, you know, speaking of comfortable ruts, in the introduction to your book, you write about how difficult it can be for us as Christians, maybe particularly in America, to be neighbors to others who who make us uncomfortable. Expand on that. Expand on that a little bit for us. When it comes to compassion and meeting the needs of others, do you think that Christians in America, generally speaking, maybe don't take it very seriously and, and don't make it the kind of priority that, that that we should? And if not, why not? I guess I would begin by suggesting that mercy ministry of any kind is actually really hard work. Mm. Um, In the same way that Christians quite often will have uh, embarrassment and discomfort with respect to evangelism, um, actually doing different kinds of mercy ministry can be very unsettling things. Mm. Um, you know, the, the most common place we tend to think of when we talk about mercy ministry is feeding the hungry. And if you've actually worked with the homeless or any um, individuals who are in difficult circumstances, you know, their homes are often unsafe. If we can call them homes, um, they themselves may be unclean or even involved in drugs or in other um, forms of addiction. And so uh, it's un- an uncomfortable playing field. But uh, don't we see Jesus go into these sorts of situations? And so with that as an example, I, I indeed would suggest we need to take it seriously and make it a priority. So how can those of us who are sort of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, enslaved by or, or trapped in this you know, American self-focused culture, you know, how is it we can begin to break free from our focus on ourselves and, and on our own comfort and begin to be motivated and convicted to reach out and, and meet the needs of others with compassion? Is there any practical steps we can take, do you think? Well, earlier you mentioned the idea that uh, 
when talking in church settings, it's quite common for us to emphasize things like personal Bible study, devotion, uh, prayer, and those sorts of things. Um, it's not a part of the human flesh to naturally gravitate to, to doing those things. But the scripture calls us to do all kinds of things that are uncomfortable for us. Mm. And so I, I think that, you know, we who contend that we're moved by scripture need to hear the, the thousands, and that's the right word, the thousands of uh, portions of scripture that talk about the poor in one way or another and be moved, be motivated by such things and be compelled to, to act accordingly. Yeah, that's good. Well, so let me ask you this. How important do you think that it is that mercy ministry and, and charitable action be done in an explicitly or overtly Christian evangelistic manner? I, I ask because on the one hand, you write positively in your introduction about humanitarian institutions which are consciously and intentionally secular in orientation and don't appeal to the teachings of Jesus. And you you go so far as to imagine Jesus pointing to the reader and saying, go and do likewise. But then on the other hand, earlier in your preface, you had written that evangelicals often either think of serving others and sharing the gospel as separate and distinct activities or, or fail to articulate the gospel at all, assuming that they've sort of shared their faith simply by serving others. And so um, what then do you see as the proper role of explicit, overt evangelism as part of mercy ministry? I guess that I would start by looking at our evangelistic efforts in general. Um, I would say, how effective are we being in our evangelism? Quite often it's the case in church circles that, you know, we will portray a sort of stereotypical picture where a business traveler will get into an airplane and be seated next to an unbeliever and will try to somehow share the gospel with them. Um, or, you know, for those who are bold enough, we might imagine going door to door and trying to share the gospel in suburbs where people really don't want people knocking on their doors. Mm. By, con by contrast, everyone who is poor, who is hurting, who is in physical or social need of one kind or another, already has presented us with an open door. Now, it's certainly the case that we want to do more than, say, uh, be, be warm and well-fed. We want to um, meet those uh, human needs. But in doing so, it's quite often the case that these folks are much more open to actually hearing what we have to say than uh, our typical target audience. Hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think I'm suggesting urgently that William Booth gives a great example of um, if a man has a toothache, um, we need to care for the toothache so that he has the ability to concentrate and hear what we have to say. You know, it's certainly easy to point to institutions that fail to also then share the gospel. We don't want to fail to uh, share the truths of Scripture, but by the same token, we want to walk through that open door. Okay. No, that's good. 
Well, we've only covered just a preface and introduction to your book, and, and I focused on this introductory material because the 33 chapters of your book each concentrate on how we can show mercy and compassion to others in a particular area, feeding the hungry, helping the homeless, providing disaster relief, and so forth. And if we were to spend time in each of these, then the interview would last hours long. But I do want to just sort of ask a few questions about this bulk of the book in order to tease listeners into picking up a copy and seeing how in each of these ways they can my, they can make a difference. And so the first question is, how did you go about compiling this list of 33 ways we can engage the world with Christian compassion? It, it covers really a wide variety of ground from those that one might expect, like the ones that I just mentioned, to others which one might not have expected in a book like this. Things like opposing abortion, fighting pornography, and entering the political arena. So how did you identify these specific 33 opportunities for engaging in mercy ministry? Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is that the 33 topics by themselves, I don't pretend are exhaustive. Hmm. Uh, I don't cover, for example, I don't have a chapter on fighting human trafficking. And that's, I would almost say, a trendy topic in Christian circles. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's trendy in a sense. It's an area of Christian ministry that we do need to be active in. But what I did try to do was... Um, show anyone who would be willing to read the idea that, okay, so it might be that you're uncomfortable with feeding uh, the hungry or caring for the stranger or helping homeless people or even caring for the sick. But there are so many ways um, that we as Christians could potentially help others that I wanted to point to different categories of humanity whereby we could potentially have a positive impact and give some insight with respect to what could potentially be done in that domain while still, even in those areas, leaving the door open for further reflection. Do you think, do you think that for those of us uh, that may not be as courageous as perhaps we ought to be, do, uh, do you think that maybe some of these areas might that, that might be easier for us to put to to begin to do uh, to meet the needs of others might help us to then take a, a, a you know a braver step in in one of the areas that currently make us uncomfortable like feeding hungry people or whatever. Oh, that's absolutely the case. Uh, one of the chapters in uh, this book is on the subject of hospice care, and in that setting you are typically going to be engaging not only, you know, with people who are at the end of their lives, but with families who are grieving and hurting. Uh, it's quite often the case that counterintuitively, just by going in and bringing, uh, you know, a care basket or by sitting with people and, and praying with them, um, you have the opportunity to bring the love of Christ in a way that is less intense, perhaps, than mm. some of the other areas that we're talking about. But but if I could, let me choose one other topic that uh, might be less obvious. So I talked to some degree about the subject of being involved in prison ministry. And when we think about that subject, it's like you suggested, uh, you know, kind of gripping for some Christians to consider the idea of going into a prison and <laughs> sharing the gospel and, and coming out alive. Yeah. Well, um, I'd say two things about that. First, uh, if you've ever been in a prison and had the opportunity to be a part of one of those ministries, 
I have actually found an openness to the gospel there that, that I have not always seen in some churches. Mm. Um, when I have the opportunity to share communion, um, I quite often will see people in tears um, saying things like, I haven't had the opportunity to have communion for um, decades in some cases. And so on the one hand, it's not quite what you would expect. But on the other hand, uh, prison ministry in our country, particularly here in the United States, really is much larger than the prison walls themselves. Um, if we could get our heads around the idea of helping one person who is coming out of prison find a job or a home, um, it really underscores uh, the the reality of the larger prison experience. And also, I suppose, by analogy, ministering to those who have family members in prison. So, you know, I choose that example because I think it shows something of the breadth of each of these topics in a way that might be unexpected. Yeah, that's good. I noticed that each chapter in the book is is very short and digestible, typically from just three to six pages. In fact, I think that if I counted right, only one chapter uh, approaches, you know, even 10 pages. Was was this kind of, these kind of bite-sized, digestible chapters, was that intentional? Could, could you have chosen, for example, to fill each chapter instead with multiple times that many pages? Uh, it, it was definitely a deliberate act to uh, limit the overall size of the book. With 33 topics, quite naturally, it would have been easy to have 660 pages. Mm. But, but um, the, the primer that I wrote, which I mentioned, uh, called The Heart of Love, which is uh, related to this book, is even shorter. And, you know, I, I suppose uh, since you pointed out that your audience has a Calvinistic bent, um, John Calvin's first work was uh, on the Christian Institutes was dramatically shorter than uh, the two volumes that we typically see presented as Calvin's Institutes today. And my intention um, in that book and in this one is sort of to meet audiences with, in this case, an intermediate level of information with mm. the idea of reforming min mercy ministry so that um, it spurs thinking, but doesn't overwhelm. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think, for example, of uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and what a gem I think that that book is, and yet its size can be, well, and this, this is probably true of any systematic theology, its size can be incredibly overwhelming to the average reader, whereas if you were, if one were to take that, in fact, I think Wayne Grudem has done something like this, taken uh, that material and condensed it into a much more digestible package for the average reader, it it, it meets a whole other level of, of audience that the, that the larger work would not. And I see that being the case here. I think you have a, a real opportunity to meet people who, unfortunately, in this day and age, uh, have a limited <laughs> attention span, um, you know, and, and, and are going to more easily digest your book than if it had been much larger. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, it seems to me that your book might make for great small group material. You've got, uh, at the end of each chapter, you've got this section on reflection, things that can be done to, to reflect on the chapter. Uh, and, and I could see small groups using that to spur discussion. Is that a role that you saw your book filling? Um, I don't think in t initially when I set out that that was my intention. Um, but having said that, uh, it was the publisher who really sort of spurred me on to think in terms of including that kind of broader reflection in each chapter. And uh, there's a sense in which I guess I, I viewed all of the content uh, overall to sort of play that role. Um, at no point can I be exhaustive about any of these topics, but 
But having said that, it's definitely the case that I, I want people to, to think and to talk and to act in ways perhaps they haven't. And so certainly uh, small group opportunities would seem ideal. Yeah. Let me pose what might be a tough question for you, uh, not necessarily tough for you to answer, but uh, having having no idea where you're coming from and, uh, when it comes to this question, I'll, I just assume it might be tough. I don't know. Anyway, do you think that proportions of your book might not be appreciated by Christians in certain circles or, or, or may not spur much change given the divide, the, the socio-political divide in America? I mean, take, for example, your chapter on fighting for fair wages. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily advocate for an increase in the minimum wage, um, but nevertheless, it might not resonate with some very financially conservative Christians. Or take your chapter on fighting for health care reform. You encourage Christians on either side of the universal coverage debate to aim for common ground, you know, agreeing on the importance of making better health care available to more Americans and, and at more affordable prices. And that's all great and totally, you know, I'm definitely on board with that. But left-leaning and right-leaning Christians are sure to disagree very passionately about how best to accomplish that goal. So I guess the question I have for you is, do you think that your book, despite this, you know, really sharp divide that exists in much of American Christendom, do you think that nevertheless your book can resonate with Christians on either side of this uh, debate, perhaps even motivate them to find common ground from which they can minister together? Well, I, I guess that I, I feel very passionate about this uh, idea that there are some topics that we label as conservative and other ideas that we label as liberal. And the specific ideas that I'm talking about are biblical ideas. So, for example, um, uh, not speaking specifically for the moment about fair wages, but on the topic of immigration, which is to some extent the topic I touch on, um, we see, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, the scriptures talking about uh, how to interact with strangers. And then we see Jesus personally, of course, engaging with every ilk, including, you know, Samaritans. Uh, unbelievable, unimaginable. <laughs> And, and we don't see Jesus ultimately, you know, trying to pre please conservative Pharisees or liberal Pharisees. What he's trying to do is minister to human needs and to show the goodness and truths of God to these folks. And so I guess since you brought it up, this idea of fair wages, for the most financially conservative Christian, those who have the most ardent views on that topic, um, you know, I would appeal to the idea that whether we're talking about a small business or a corporation, um, if uh, I, for example, as a small business owner, am not paying the people who work for me a fair wage, that's something that the scriptures would take umbrage with. Mm. Um, and so also in a corporate setting, I think that we are inclined to allow the anonymity of large corporate circles to denigrate the human worth of individuals. And so, you know, to the degree that we're a party in those things, advocating um, for decency and fairness, uh, we participate in those things. So I would like to think that um, whether, you know, someone has uh, uh, one viewpoint or another with respect to uh, Republican or Democratic kinds of financial ideas, uh, I'm really concerned about seeing how it is that we as believers can meet the needs of strangers and the poor in a way that um, uh, follows the model of Jesus and the apostles. Yeah. 
Uh, one last question before we begin to wrap up. Uh, I'm just curious, what sort of um, what sort of feedback have you gotten on your book? You know, have there been any reviews written about it, anything like that, that uh, uh, either positive or negative that you'd be interested in sharing? Well, <laughs> I I am of the class of humanity that does not go out seeking. Um, to see what reviews have been written. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm not saying that because I, I feel like my work is uh, unassailable, but because I feel like sometimes that sort of uh, activity can cripple you from doing additional work. Mm. So uh, I read one of the reviews early on for my first book on Jonathan Edwards. I, as it turns out, it was a very positive review, but I, I found I was so... Uh, uh, consumed by, you know, concern about it, that I decided just to never do that again. So I'm really hoping loads of people are writing wondrous things about the form of mercy of history, but I don't know. Well, maybe I need to take a page from your own book, you know, as a, as a, you know, hopeful writer myself. Um, and, and if I ever publish, then, then I'll try to keep that advice in mind if, if it is advice. Uh, you know, I've taken a lot of your time. I won't take but a minute or two more. As we begin to wrap things up, if, if you could leave me and my listeners with a, with a final word, a, a parting message of sorts, something that you hope we'll take away from this interview after the recording is finished playing, uh, if we take nothing else away from it, what, what might that be? What sort of uh, uh, parting message might you leave us with? Well, I, I would emphasize that we, uh, even today, are facing a problem that emerged in the early 1900s. The problem is that Rauschenbusch came out and uh, many of his ideas led to this idea of the social gospel. And as a consequence of, in effect, losing the connection with the presentation of scripture, perhaps in some of those um, early social gospel conversations, uh, the church, I believe, overreacted to that problem and said, well, we certainly don't want to be accused in our day of participating in the social gospel. And mm. so um, we left the domain of helping other people to churches, perhaps that we call liberal or to individuals who have no Christian connection whatsoever. And as a result, I believe that the scripture calls us to be engaged once again in this domain and so I'm not saying that we should do so in a way that divorces Scripture from our interactions, but on the contrary, recognizes that there is a natural connection to bringing the love of Christ to hurting people and to then also uh, including the truths of Scripture in that uh, interaction. Yeah. No, that's very, that's very good. I know that I personally have been convicted, even prior to getting my hands on your book, uh, that caring for the needs of others is not something I've made much of a priority, and so I really appreciate the additional conviction that your book brings uh, and the ideas that it offers for beginning to make a difference. What's the best way for my listeners to get their own hands on a, on a copy? Um, InterVarsity's website uh, is probably the best place, www.ivpress.com, although I am told books can be purchased on the Internet as well. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and, and not just this corner of the Internet. What corner is that? The InterVarsity corner. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Amazon might be another place where they could get there. <laughs> is it available on Kindle? Do you know? It, uh, I believe it is. You'd think I'd know that, but... 
Well, I'll, why don't you go? Why don't you go look? Yeah, I will do that. And, and if it is, I'll include a link in the show notes. Uh, and, and if any of my listeners might like to earn a degree from Liberty, um, as, as I am doing, where can they go online to learn more and they get in contact with someone for help getting the ball rolling? Well, Liberty's uh, websites are, are tremendously helpful. And so www.liberty.edu would be the best venue to get started. And uh, hopefully uh, it is a very intuitive uh, and thorough uh, source for information about Liberty and many of the options that are presented. Uh, it's very, uh, just one final word in, in favor of Liberty. You know, It's very affordable. And at the same time, it's not... Uh, uh, I've enjoyed the wide variety of perspectives that I've been exposed to. It's certainly not as as its reputation may or may not be. It's certainly not uh, a fundamentalist institution that's just going to shove fundamentalist ideas down your throat, even if it does hold to very conservative uh, uh, ideals, which I share. So yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak positively enough about Liberty, and, and I hope that listeners will check it out. And, and again, Dr. Rivera, thank you so much for your time. I really gre- greatly appreciate the time you've given us today. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did conducting it. Uh, Do check out Liberty's website at liberty.edu and check out Dr. Rivera's book. I think you'll enjoy it. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Theobologetics Podcast. Until then, 